If you're looking for a thrifty way to boost the health of the soil in your garden, cover crops are the answer. Thanks to On The Ledge episode sponsors True Leaf Market, you can rehab your soil the same way that farms do by growing cover crops. True Leaf Market has been selling heirloom and organic garden seeds since 1974 and they offer a great selection of cover crop seeds including their all-purpose garden cover crop mix, their most popular cover crop seeds for home gardeners. Get True Leaf Market's free beginner's guide to growing cover crops by visiting trueleafmarket.com and searching cover crop guide. And order your cover crops online now at trueleafmarket.com using promo code OTL15 to save 15% on cover crop seeds. That's trueleafmarket.com. Enter OTL15 for 15% off cover crops. Some restrictions apply. See the show notes for full details. Welcome to On The Ledge podcast. In this week's show, we're putting on our finest pair of slippers. It's episode 240. I'm your host, Jane Perone, and I visit orchid specialist Malcolm Moody in Oxfordshire to find out all about Paphiopedalums and Phragmopediums, two types of slipper orchid that are absolutely gorgeous. And I find out why we should all be getting signed up for our local orchid society. Plus, I answer a question about Fluval Stratum. No, it's not a character from the latest iteration of Star Trek. It's a substrate. Thank you to Gina, Sarah, Catherine and Mireya for becoming legends and to Alice who upgraded from legend status to superfan. Thank you all of you five lovely people for supporting On The Ledge on Patreon. And if you want to join their clan, check out the show notes at janeperone.com to find out what it's all about. It's your way of unlocking extra exclusive content ad-free versions of the show and the upcoming Christmas mail-out where you get a handwritten card from my good self. So do check that out if you want to support the show on Patreon. You can also leave a review, tell a friend or buy some merch. My Hand Lens Gang t-shirts are available now from my shop, which you'll find by clicking on the link entitled shop at janeperone.com from the top right-hand corner, navigation. It's ludicrously simple. Now, when I promised you more Orchid content a couple of weeks ago, I was not lying. And in this week's episode, I travelled to Oxfordshire to visit the wonderful Malcolm Moody and find out all about how he grows Award-winning orchids, in particular from the genera Phragmopedium and Paphiopedalum. 
And if you're a Patreon subscriber at the legend or super fan level, you can go and check out the latest episode of An Extra Leaf, where I talk to Malcolm about Masdevalia's another orchid genus that he grows extremely well. So let's step inside the delightfully sheltered environment of an orchid greenhouse to find out more about these beautiful slipper orchids. My name is Malcolm Moody. Um, I've been growing orchids for about 35 years and I'm currently chairman and vice president of the Solly Holland District Orchid Society. Well, Malcolm, it's a delight to be in this greenhouse surrounded by lovely orchids and I want to hear about everything. But I think what I need to know first is give me an outline of of, of what your collection specialises in and why you've chosen those particular genera to concentrate on because obviously the orchid family is huge well obviously uh, uh, we're standing here in the intermediate end of the greenhouse and for those that can't see um, I have a long greenhouse which is divided into two halves we're in the intermediate end as I as I said and in this end uh, I grow phragmopediums and paphiopedilums both lady slipper orchids come from different parts of the world but look very similar um, and the temperatures and conditions are set up for them specifically. I mean, the cooler end of the greenhouse, which we'll go into shortly, um, I grow primarily Mazdavalias and Oncidiums, which both come from the uh, the Andes, and fairly high up, and the that area needs to be a lot cooler uh, than the one we're currently standing in. And this must be a long-standing passion, Malcolm, because... You've got a big collection here, and I know that you've, I've been told that you are a multi-medal winning uh, grower. So where did this all begin? Were you a childhood orchid grower, or when did this kick in for you? I was definitely not a childhood (laughs) orchid grower. Um, My father was a national standard chrysanthemum grower and exhibited all over the country. And as a family, we were dragged hither and thither (laughs) uh, going to shows, and my father was extremely successful. And he got to the stage where he felt that he couldn't uh, do any more in that particular field and decided that he'd give that up and do something differently. And a neighbour, um, in fact, lived opposite us, um, had an orchid collection. And uh, he was getting very elderly, and he said to my father, would you like to buy my orchid collection? So my father did, and he bought his whole greenhouse and all the plants all in one go. Um, he never really got to grips with growing orchids, but it became a, a big obsession for him. Um, I didn't want to grow orchids. In fact, I didn't want to do anything in the gardening world because I'd been forced to as a child. And I told my father I would conquer it over my first garden because I didn't want to do any gardening. (laughs) Of course, that's not the way it worked out. And as soon as I bought my first house, I became very interested in gardening, growing anything. And I'd learned huge amounts from my father despite my reluctance. Um, When we moved here uh, 40 years ago... My father would come up and stay, and he'd say, you know what you need, son, is some orchids. And I said, well, I don't, Dad. And he said, yes, you do. <laughs> and over a period of time, he would just turn up with them. And, of course, I'd put them in the greenhouse, um, and they were mixed in with fuchsias and geraniums and tomatoes and anything else, and they didn't grow that well. And I knew nothing about them. And I decided that either I would throw them all away or do it seriously. And as you can see, standing here, um, I took it on seriously. And I decided I'd build a proper orchid greenhouse, which I did. 
And this then became my obsession. And did your father live long enough to see this, his yes, predictions he, he, come he, true? Yes, he did. Unfortunately, he didn't, um, he's not around anymore. And I recently named a plant after him. Um, and it would have been lovely if mm. he'd have still been alive. I also named a plant after my mother this year, and she's no longer mm. with us either. Mm. But he did see the greenhouse, not quite as um, as good as it is now, but he, he did see it, and he was really proud of it. Mm. And uh, he learned, in fact, he ended up learning quite a bit from me because it became <laughs> my obsession rather than his. And because I'm younger, I was able to learn so much more and apply it. He only came to Orchids when he was in his 60s, mm. whereas I came to Orchids when I was in my sort of 30s. Um, and, you know, if you get started early, you obviously learn a hell of a lot over that time and you're able to um, produce much better plants if you're given time. And orchids grow slowly. You know, if you specialise in growing um, Brussels sprouts, you can sow your Brussels sprout seeds and eat the Brussels sprouts all in one season and the job's done. But with orchids, you need multiple years to get the plants into a situation where they're producing lots of flowers and that they're show ready. And you've got to be patient. And if you're not patients, orchids really aren't for you. Well, that is a top tip. And here we've got some very large, on on my right, your left, a very large um, phragmopediums, these, this type of slipper orchids. Let's start with these. They're very beautiful. We've got a few in flower here. Tell me a little bit about this particular genus and where it comes from and what it offers as an orchid. Well, Phragmopediums all grow in South America. You don't find them anywhere else on Earth. And nearly always they're growing on steepish banks with water trickling through them. Because the Andes high up, it's very wet, you get an awful lot of precipitation, and the fresh, clean water is cascading down uh, from the mountain all the time. And so this particular genus needs to be grown wet. Now, I grow them in rock wall cubes, um, and hopefully some of the people uh, listening to this will um, know what I mean yes, when I talk about yeah. Rockwell cubes. They soak up a large amount of water mm-hmm. and therefore the roots are always in water. If you grow them in something that's uh, much drier, say for instance a bark mix, you need to water them almost every day. And I don't really want, wish to do that because it just takes so much time. Others stand them in, in bowls of water. Um, But the problem with that is that the substrate you're growing in will tend to rot and you'll end up with other problems. Whereas with rock wall cubes being an inert material, they don't rot. The downside is that they do hold nutrients and so you have to flush them regularly. Otherwise, you get salt buildup. But if you remember to do that, and I do mine once, once a month, and I collect the water and measure the water to see what level of nutrients have been retained, but I flush them with clean water uh, once a month, I don't suffer a problem. And you've got a top dressing here of grit. Um, it's, it's, it's coarse grit. And the reason I do that is if you grow things in rock wall, you'll end up with an awful lot of uh, mosses and algaes growing on the, the top, which look very unsightly. Um, and so I, I top dress them with, with uh, grit for two reasons. One, to stop that, but also to reduce the, 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 the evaporation from the uh, uh, rock wall cubes. And what do the roots of these actually look like? Well, the root systems on um, on all the lady slipper orchids are hairy. Yeah. Um, they're not like Phalaenopsis roots, which, of course, we're all familiar with, um, which, are, which are very, very smooth. And these are hairy. Um, and on, on the Phragmopediums in particular, 
if they're growing in a wet in wet conditions all the time, they will produce huge quantities of roots. Um, the roots w- will actually make the pots bulge. Mm. Um, this is sort of thing that you see on cymbidiums. Um, cymbidiums grown in, plas- in plastic pots also um, show a lot of bulging because they just produce so much root mass. And these do. Uh, the downside of that, of course, is you, you're constantly in a position where you've got to pot them on or <laughs> split them up. Yeah. Um, but they do grow very quickly. And as you can see, these plants are large um, and they'll all get, or most of them will get to this sort of size if mm. you let them, if you're mm. growing them well, with lots of flower. And the one that you're standing in front, of course, has got uh, six flower spikes on with, I don't know, about eight flowers out at the moment. Wow. Yes, that is really stunning. They do have the most beautiful flowers, these slipper orchids. Uh, is there any one of these that's a particular favourite of yours, either in flower or not? Well, the, 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 the one that is my favourite is this one here. It's not in flower at the moment. Uh, this is called Phragmopedium Bully Bay, but this received an AM an award of merit from the RHS and is named after my daughter Amanda. Oh. Um, and effectively, it was the only one in the world. Nobody had ever seen this particular flower before. It just happened to be a chance mutation from a hybrid that was made by the Eric Young Foundation a few years ago. They've had awards for it, but not for this particular colour because they'd never seen this colour before. Now, I've, I've managed to divide it a number of times, and there are about a half a dozen of them elsewhere, including in a nursery in Germany that's been propagating it. But that by far, unfortunately, is not in flower, so you can't see mm-hmm. it. Um, but I can show you an image l- late, later on of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And that's by far my favourite because it's obviously named after my daughter. Of course, of course. But it's always very difficult to pick out uh, a favourite mm. because... Well, they're all favourites when they're in flower, aren't they? Of course. Um, you know, I love them all. <laughs> and if I didn't love them, I wouldn't grow them. Um, but because one's named after my daughter, it does add a certain um, a- added value to me. Of course. And coming from the Andes, presumably they're not a species, uh, uh, they're not a gen- genus that requires hugely high temperatures. They're qu- probably quite high elevations. Therefore, lots of humidity, but not too hot. How, how, um, how would you ke- what are the conditions you keep this well, particular area? They grow in? in the Andes, but they don't grow as high up as the Mazda Valleys that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do need reasonable warmth. Mm-hmm. And these are growing alongside their uh, sister genus um, Paphiopedalums, um, which do need a reasonable amount of warmth because they grow a bit quite a lot lower down. But in, in, in Southeast Asia, um, but they're not hot growers they're not you know, if you were growing vandas for instance it would be far too hot for these um, but if you're growing fa- uh, growing phalaenopsis and cattleyas um, the phragmopediums will grow perfectly happy alongside them pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's move on to talk about the other side of the bench where you've got these, uh, the paths as we call them. And you've got quite a few of these in flower. And looking at the foliage, um, it looks like you've got two styles of foliage here the sort of dark spotty foliage and then the plain green um or sort of mostly plain green 
is that telling us anything about slightly different conditions needed for those two types of leaf or is that is that irrelevant to their care well i think before answering that question i would just like to draw a comparison between the phragmopediums we've just been talking about and the paphiopedalums that we're now facing the phragmopediums behind us are so much larger it's very distinctly obvious that the phragmopediums are much more, um, they're big growers. They grow very quickly, produce a lot of root mass and lots and lots of leaves. They are in water all the time. The plants we're now talking about, paphiopedalums, are semi-terrestrials. They don't actually, the, the, the roots don't go down into the soil. The roots scrabble around underneath the leaf litter, but most of them grow on the ground. There are a few epiphytic ones. Um, that, for instance, is an epiphytic. It's belosum, and you'll only ever find it on a tree. And there are only three species of tree it grows on, funnily enough, oh, okay. and they won't grow on any other tree. Uh, but most of these are semi-terrestrials. They grow on the ground. Um, the ones, I mean, you've mentioned about the leaves. The ones with tessellated leaves, a lot of people think they're variegated. They're not. It's called tessellation, and you've got these sort of blotchy patches on, on the leaves. It makes them, in many respects, more attractive because when they're not in flower, they still look like mm. an attractive houseplant. Whereas the ones that are green, well, they're a bit boring, aren't they? Really? <laughs> um, but uh, uh, they all grow in similar sorts of conditions. The ones that have got tessellated leaves tend to grow in in sort of more shady conditions um, than the, than the plain plain green ones. Um, but they, they, they all grow in the same way. They all have the same characteristics and the same uh, cultural requirements. And, I mean, if the leaves are boring, you cannot say that about the flowers, which are these incredible combinations of different colours, uh, textures and shapes. I can't really describe these. I'm sure you'll do a much better job, Malcolm, of describing these incredible flowers. Well, these were one of the first orchids that were brought into cultivation. And if you go back to the Victorian times when these were in their heyday, uh, people called them lady slipper orchids. And they called them that because they've got this pouch at the front of the flower. And um, if you look at them closely, you'll see that you could imagine a lady's foot slipping into the pouch. (laughs) And so they became known as lady slipper orchids. The one that actually displays that characteristic the best is Paphiopedalum concolor. I haven't got it in flower at the moment, but it really does look like a slipper. Um, And then after that, they all call them lady slipper orchids, regardless of whether they were Paphiopedalums, Phragmopediums or Cypripediums. And they're all related. They all have the same characteristic of having this pouch. And many people think, oh, that makes them carnivorous. But they're not carnivorous at all. (laughs) But it is a methodology by which the plant has evolved to take advantage of insect pollination. And basically what happens is an insect will go into that pouch and it finds it very difficult to get out because there are hairs um, on on the inside of that pouch which stop the insect being able to climb out. But there is a path that runs up the back of the pouch and at the top of the pouch you'll see there's a little sort of a round disc Um, which is called the staminode, and behind that is where the pollen is. And the insect climbs up the back of the flower, because it is the only way out, and it pushes through with its head, and as it does so, it picks up the pollen on the back of its head and then comes out and flies off and finds another flower, which it then cross-pollinates with. Um, It's a very neat adaptation. How many millions of years it took to get there, who knows? But all all of the lady slipper orchids have that same adaptation. As you say, how on earth did that evolve? But it is incredible. Um, and these flowers, 
I always kind of think of slipper orchids having, uh, you know, one flower. But actually, you've got several here that have got several flower spikes on them. Um, how uh, obviously people often buy these from a garden centre, say, in flower, and then get to that point when the flower, which lasts a very long time, finally dies back. And then they're sort of one, left wondering, is that ever going to happen again? <laughs> what, what's the care regime that, that allows you to bring your path back into flower? Well, the first thing you need to do once a, a, a flower has faded and died is to cut the old flower spike off, and, and you need to cut right back down to the to, to the base because it's not going to do anything; it just looks unsightly. Um, and then, of course, what you've got to do is to, to to love that plant and look after it carefully, and hopefully, within twelve months, it will flower again. And as long as you water it reasonably regularly once a week probably in the summer once every 10 days in the winter and now obviously if you're growing in a in house on the windowsill your conditions might vary a little bit so you may have to vary that um, but if you're growing them like that and fertilizing them regularly with a good quality fertilizer there's a good chance that you'll get that plant to reflower in a year's time generally i find in talking to people that growing papiopetalums indoors on a windowsill is more tricky than it is if you're growing in a greenhouse. There are some orchids, as we know, Phalaenopsis, which we see everywhere, they're ubiquitous now. Um, they grow very well in, in, in um, house conditions and they've been bred to do so. They're very tolerant of whatever we throw at them. But paths are a little bit more tricky, especially if you're growing a species. A species has a specific set of requirements, which a hybrid doesn't. Um, and of course, the Phalaenopsis we grow are complex hybrids and that's probably why they've been bred in such a way that they can cope with almost mm. anything we throw at them. And I think if anybody's going to choose papiopetalums to grow indoors on a windowsill, they need to pick a hybrid rather than a species because it will be easier to grow. And the last thing you want is to spend good money on, on a papiopetalum plant, which are generally more expensive than most others, and then you kill it. And that'll put you <laughs> off growing it. So buy a hybrid and you've got a much better chance of getting success. And I can see that the substrate is different from the Phragmopediums. Tell me what these are planted in. Um, generally, all of the Paphiopedalums will be growing in a bark substrate. Um, a, and the bark uh, grades will vary depending on the size of the plant. So something like that, that is, that is a species, uh, Nivium. It never grows very big. Um, it always stays that sort of size. And I would use generally a finer substrate for that than I would this Velosum, which is a very much bigger plant mm. um, and this grows as an epiphyte anyway and therefore doesn't need so much water at the roots so you know you can get two or three different grades of bark and make up mixes that suit the particular plant that you're growing in the only other thing that you may notice is that some of them have got limestone chippings in them now some of some of the paphiopedalums grow on cast limestone in nature and therefore they grow at a much higher ph than a typical plant does and we all know that bark is acidic, and so the way, you, the way to solve that problem or counteract that is to add lots of limestone chippings to, to, to try and in, increase the, uh, the pH. And if you don't do that, the lime lovers tend to wither and die. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're growing hybrids, generally that becomes less of a problem than it does if you're growing a species because a species does need very, very specific conditions. And so if you decide you want to grow uh, species, you need to research to find out whether they're lime lovers or not lime lovers. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. As you say, you don't want to waste money on a plant that then doesn't make it. 
I've had problems with the. I've got a couple of hybrids which I managed to rot the roots off, and I think the reason was was they were quite small, and my bark substrates grade was too big. Um, I've they had a lot of root rot. I've cut off all the roots. I've put them in a glass of water because I don't know what else to do. What sh- is there any way of saving them now they've not got a lot in the way of roots? Just asking for me selfishly <laughs> while I'm here. <laughs> well, it, it does depend on which genus we're talking about. Yeah. It, are yours Phalaenopsis or are they Paphiopedalums? No, they're definitely Paphiopedalums. They yeah, they're pa- Paphiopedalum hybrids. Fortunately, Paphiopedalums will flower when they have no roots at all. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so even, <laughs> even if you've lost all your roots, for some reason, I don't know why they do it, but they are able to flower without any roots. Um, what you need to do, of course, is you need to put them into some uh, a permanent sh- substrate, so a, a, a bark of some kind. Um, the fact that you said they were, were rotting and then you said you used a coarse bark mm. is a little bit... Been a bit of a contradiction, really, mm. because normally that happens when you're using a finer bark where you've got less air spaces but more opportunity for it to get wet. I think what I was doing was I was trying to co- compensate for the fact that I'd used coarse bark and giving them too much water. Okay. I think that's where I went wrong. Um, I, th- I think if, if the plant has got no roots on now, then you probably do need a fairly fine substrate. Mm-hmm. Um, you still only need to water them probably once a week. Uh, but I can show you an ex- example here somewhere. Um, here, here is a plant that's actually got some sphagnum chopped up as well. Mm-hmm. And it was because this plant was a division that actually fell off when I was repotting it, and it had virtually no roots. So I made up a much finer mix and as I say, this has got uh, sphagnum in it as well. Um, and that just means that the substrate stays wetter. Um, but I may not water that for two or three weeks, depending on what it feels like. I mean, I watered this on um, Monday, um, and it's still, as you can see, very wet. So I, next time I water in here, this will not get watered, because it won't need to. And it may go a month without watering. But the important thing is that you've got water at the roots, um, and that'll allow the, the root system to start to get away. Um, and when I knock that out, hopefully in a year's time, they'll have a decent root system on it. Well, I'll, I'll take your advice. I'll let you know how I get on. The same applies <laughs> if, you, if, you're, if you're doing any seed sowing. And there's, there's some seeds that were sown a few years ago. This is actually a, a seeds of plants that I actually sowed. Um, and this is growing in, in a, a much um, closed mix with very fine bark and uh, with sphagnum. And as you can see, we've got nice new leaves coming now. They came out of a, a flask about six months ago, um, and that's quite a trauma for them because they've come out mm. of a very, very uh, controlled environment into an open environment, and it takes a little while for them to settle. But if you try to grow these in plain bark, they will dry out and just die. Right. As you said at the beginning of the interview, patience is all, because if you're growing from seed, you've got to be uh, looking at the long game and waiting for them to mature. But, I mean, that's part of the joy isn't it of, of, of getting to know plants and there's no better way of getting to know plants than growing from seed I would think so um, are there any other particular paths here that you want to tell me about that we haven't already covered um, well there are there are a couple I mentioned to you that when you asked me about how I got into this and I talked about my um, my parents and how they influenced me this particular plant with nice tessellated leaves is named after my father um, it's a bright yellow plant. I'll show you. I've got pictures of it indoors. It had five flower spikes with five perfectly flower, uh, formed flowers, similar in coloration to that one, and that mm. received uh, a, a cultural commendation certificate this year from the RHS. And behind you, 
um, just to your what would be your right is this plant here. Oh, yes, I um, meant to ask you which, about which that. Which is now beginning to lose flowers, but that's Paphiopedalum St. Swithin, and that was named after my mother because that also was given an award by the RHS, another cultural accommodation certificate. And those two plants for me are very important because obviously they're now my mum and dad in this greenhouse and they were the ones, particularly my father, who got me into this mad hobby um, <laughs> that I now am so obsessed with I can't, I can't stop growing them. And that is a real showstopper. I mean, those incredible flowers in... I mean, the colour is quite subtle. It's sort of a cappuccino and very, very dark brown or maroon. But it's just that incredible shape and the number of blooms you've got on there that is... Really well, there's a lot impressive. less blooms now than, than there were. A lot of flowers have fallen, unfortunately. That, that went to, the, um, to Wisley, to the RHS Orchid Committee in August. And here we are now right at the end of, of September. And uh, four or five flowers have, have, have withered and fallen off. So it's not at its peak. Again, I can show you a picture you know, when, it, when it was. And it was absolutely stunning uh, when I took it to the RHS. Um, but funnily enough, the day before I went to, uh, to take it to the judging committee, I was told the rules had changed about bringing plants into Wisley and they've got to be in a box or wrapped to be completely, subs- uh, to su- be completely secure so that they don't bring any bugs into the garden. And it took me an hour to wrap that so that I could get it into the garden. Um, and I was worried I was going to lose or damage flowers, but fortunately, touch wood, I didn't. Oh, well, it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful specimen and a real credit to you. So um, I'm really delighted to have been able to see that. Uh, is there anything else we need to know about? I'm just trying to think if we've covered everything about this particular group of orchids that's relevant. Well, we haven't tackled pests. I mean, I guess it's the same story as any uh, as any orchid, really, that you've just got to keep your eyes peeled and keep on top of uh, things. Do you have any special regime for pests in here? Well, the best regime is your eyes. You've mm. got to look at your plants regularly. I, I pick up every single plant in this greenhouse once a week. And when I water, I pick up every plant and I water it individually. I don't try and do something with a lance walking around just watering everything quickly because you don't get the opportunity to pick up the plant and have a look at it and see if there's anything going wrong. Certainly, if you've got uh, pests, you've got to deal with them quickly. You have to remember that growing in, an, in a greenhouse of any kind is perfect conditions for pests to proliferate. So once you get one, you'll have millions, and I mean millions, in a very quick time. And so spotting them early and spraying them early is a really good thing to do. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of people are very nervous about using pesticides and insecticides, and I fully understand that. And many of them, of course, have now been banned in the UK, certainly for hobbyists' use. Um, but I still do use um, pesticides. Um, I find it's the only way to get rid of, uh, of the, the problem. And I normally take plants out. I don't spray them inside the greenhouse. I'll take them out in the fresh air so that I'm not breathing in the pesticide spray them, give them a good soak of whatever it is I'm using and then bring them back in. And then I watch that plant very carefully over the following couple of weeks to make certain that I've solved that problem. Sometimes you have to take multiple plants out. Anything that was near is likely to be infested, so you may have to spray half a dozen or a dozen. I've even got to the stage where I've sprayed everything in here and it takes a long time to take them all out one by one to do it. But I don't like doing it when I'm present in the room because it's a... Well, you, you're liable to breathe in some of the pesticides and it can't do you any good. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, though. It all starts with just looking and observing your plants really carefully, doesn't it? That is the key. Thanks so much to Malcolm for showing me his wonderful collection of orchids. And if you are a legend or a super fan, you can listen to my chat with Malcolm about Mazda Valleyers now over on the Patreon RSS feed app or website. Now it's time for question of the week. And this one comes from Rowena, who wanted to know about fluval stratum. What in the heck is fluval stratum? Well, I have a partial answer for you, Rowena. I know what it is and roughly what it's used for, but I haven't tried it myself. And that's where the listeners are coming in. If you have experience of using fluval stratum in a houseplant sense, then I'd love to know how you found it. But let's go back to the basics. What is this stuff? Well, it's a black substrate, lightweight has a lot of the same qualities as things like pumice. It's sold in the aquarium trade as a substrate for aquariums. It's often recommended for, I think, shrimp setups and for planting up living aquariums planted tanks. So why are people in the houseplant world using it? Well, that porosity that it offers makes it also a good product for some houseplant uses. I've heard primarily of people using it for propagation, so placing some damp fluval stratum in the bottom of a prop box and using that to prop things like hoyas. But I've also heard people using it like pond or pumice as a substrate on its own. This product is probably on the expensive side a bit like pumice here in the UK, probably going to cost you more per pound or per kilogram than, say, buying Laker or houseplant compost. I've just looked it up on a, a website here in the UK that sells such things, and it's selling here on swelluk.com for £9.20 for a two kilogram bag. I think that's probably a little bit more than you'd pay for some of the other substrates available. I think that's because it comes from a very specific place. It's mined from Mount Aso in Japan. I guess that means it's, you know, quite a limited range of places you can get it from. And I expect that the production costs are quite high to get it out of the ground and transported around the world, which explains the high prices. But the other thing to say about this substrate is I think that the pH level is on the low side so it's a little bit acidic so that might work in your favour for some plants but not in your favour for other plants depends on um, what you're growing I guess. I'm going to get hold of some fluval stratum they sell it at my local aquarium shop so when I get the chance I will head down there and grab some and I'll report back on what I find but I'd really be interested to know how you use it and what your thoughts are. So I hope that helps Rowena and hopefully we'll get more of an answer from you when I've heard back from some listeners about how they find fluval stratum. And now part two of my orchid interview. And one of the things that I always try to promote on On The Ledge is plant societies and orchid societies in particular. 
and orchid societies are in trouble in the UK. It's probably the same in other parts of the world too. Falling membership is meaning that some branches are closing. And yet there's so much to be said for joining one of these societies. So now in the second part of my interview, Malcolm is joined by Lena, aka Salate on Instagram, who is an orchid grower and is training to be an orchid judge. And I chatted to them about why you should be joining an orchid society. My name's Lena. I am um, the younger person in the Solihull Orchid Society and I've been spent good probably 15 years now there. Um, and yeah, I'm training to be an orchid judge as well. Wow. Well, we're here to talk about orchid societies because this is so important. If anyone has listened to the podcast much in the past, they'll know I bang on about joining plant societies. And orchid societies are struggling at the moment. I think it's fair to say because there's quite a fair few that are struggling for members, struggling to keep going. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you get out of being part of an orchid society and what you think it offers to somebody who's getting into this particular family of plants? I have joined an uh, orchid society after the Advice from the Gardeners World programme that I was watching when I was uh, 20 years younger. And uh, and I'm really glad that they've done this advice and, and I've actually done it and I've gone and found my local society and went in with the biggest <laughs> hybrid that I bought in Tesco's. Um, um, but I never returned back because the amount of advice I got, the amount of support, and and it just proves now, now that they've all trusted me to train for the judge. So it's because you've got to be recommended to be able to do that. So it is um, a lot of knowledge you gain just by going every month and just speaking. And obviously the talks that there are organized, but just the random chat can give you so much information. You go back and you transform everything and then you see that it doesn't work and then you do again. <laughs> if, if I could add, I mean, I've, I've been talking about my experience of over 30 years growing orchids. But when I started, I was in exactly the same position as Lena. I had a few plants that were foisted on me by my father. I didn't know much about them. I bought a couple of books, but they didn't really tell me too much. I went along to Solihull and District Orchid Society 30-odd years ago, and I met lots of very experienced, knowledgeable, and interesting and friendly people. And they helped me enormously go from being a novice to being a lot more experienced. And the beauty of going to an orchid society is you get chance to meet lots of people who have grown orchids for many years. Mm-hmm. And they can help you solve problems that you would never, ever get the answer to if you just picked up a book. Exactly. And I think uh, the younger generation also just tends to default to Googling things, looking on social media. And lots of the older, more experienced growers aren't on social media, right? No. They're not sharing tips there. So that's why a society is so great. The other aspect of societies that I love, um, and I'm guessing this is the same with orchid societies, that you go to a meeting and there might be a sales table. There might be an annual show where you can go and buy plants. It's a great place to buy plants, yeah. right? It yes. is. And, and auctions as well. You can get plants for 50p, which are, which are in good condition. And, and obviously then you, 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 you never get it anywhere else, um, anything like that. But uh, you get potting demonstrations, you get, um, you get 
Christmas dinners together, which is also a good thing. <laughs> it's 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 really a good、um, time to spend time with people that have the same interest. But one of the big things about doing things live, say for instance, you have a plant that's not doing very well. If you're on a Zoom call, you can hold this plant up, but you can't really see it. And I I get that a lot when I'm on Zoom calls, and it's very difficult to diagnose and provide any information as to how do you remedy that problem. If you bring it along, and in fact I know that there's a member that is bringing two plants to the meeting on tomorrow、um, for me to look at. You can see the plant. You can hold it up. You can look at it. You can figure out what's wrong with that plant, and then you can give very, very specific advice to the grower as to how they can remedy that problem and how they can grow that plant better. You can never do that online. Absolutely, I agree with you. You could. You, there's nothing. There's no substitute for being able to actually hold that plant, get a close look at it,、yeah. and see exactly what's going on. Even from just the weight of the pot and the Looking at the texture of the leaves, there's so much you can learn, isn't there? And as you say, plant people are on the whole massively in love with sharing their knowledge. They want to share it.、Um, but what about somebody who maybe is younger and is、um, thinking, "Oh, I I feel a, a bit anxious and a bit socially awkward about go, turning up to a meeting where I don't know anybody." Have you got any tips, Lena, as somebody who's done this? Oh, I I as I say. Probably it's my character, but when I turned up with the with the big hybrid on on Sidium, and、uh, one of the members saw it and said, "Ooh, so you probably are not even as old as my plant that is in the greenhouse." <laughs> and I was like, "Yep."、Um, but as I say, I gave I went there to learn, and、uh, it, it's always people that could be my grandparents, the same age, but I always find conversation because. We've got the same topic to talk to、mm-hmm. about, and it's 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 really that's what 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 we are all there for, and and to be honest, it's it's always I'm really interested in finding out how different people are, and it's I'm, I'm not always the one who likes to hang out with my age group. <laughs> I, I think it is a very daunting thing for. Somebody to turn up, if, especially if they're on their own. Maybe sometimes they come as a couple, but just turning up at a meeting with all these strange people—you don't know any of them. You know, are they going to engage me? Are they going to talk to me? Are they going to welcome me? And obviously, if you turn up and nobody does welcome you, then of course it reinforces the feeling. Well, I don't really want to be here. And I think the advice to anybody that's involved in an orchid society, or indeed any other type of society, is to welcome people that are new. You know, bring them in and share with them, and make them feel at home and welcome. And there's a good chance that if they feel that you've been kind and welcoming to them, that they'll feel comfortable coming back. And once they've been two or three times and they've met other people, because it becomes much more familiar and it's no longer daunting. And then you've got them then, and they remain and they make lots of new friends that they wouldn't otherwise. Never been able to make it. Became it became my orchid family. Honestly,、mm-hmm. it's it's orchid family that I have, and and I'm I'm a member of、um, a Great British Orchid Society. I'm a member of Solihull Society, and it's it's obviously you get different benefits from different societies being them. But it's、um, as I say, many societies are, you know. About and we just had to. There was a Birmingham society that closed recently. Literally, they have to like close down because ne- there's no new members and old members. They can't either can't continue growing because they're too old, or there's no more people that want to be involved. And and, and it just needs the new、um, 
people joining in and, and reviving because this has been happening for many, many years in UK. And there are lots of other things that orchid societies and indeed other plant societies do in terms of supporting research, um, sometimes field trips. There's lots going on behind the scenes, isn't there, in, in the orchid world that's, that societies are a part of as well. Yep, the, uh, there is a Ridlington school that's doing that. Um, and then uh, we have um, uh, a school in Worcestershire that's doing this as well. Uh, they they are teaching young children uh, to how to sow seeds, what the the wild orchids that they um, participate in the projects to plant them out in the in the in the local woods. And and, and there's a lot of we, we organise a coach trip every year that we go as as a, as a society and we sometimes join two societies three societies that we go to a place it's 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 a lot of information you get it's, it's a lot of activity you get to do well i really hope that lots of listeners are going to think about joining uh, an orchid society as a result of listening i know in the past when i've talked about other plant societies i've heard from lots of listeners who said yes i joined i went to my local meeting so i really hope that it's the same for orchids and i'm sure it will be it's just that initial getting over that initial fear of actually meeting people in person particularly maybe since the pandemic when we've all been used to being on zoom the idea of going to an in-person meeting but as you say um you hopefully have a lovely planty chat. There's usually a cup of tea and a biscuit available as well. Always, I mean, always. that's that's an. I'm. <laughs> it sounds pretty, but that's that's part of the companionship and the joy of going to one of these groups is that you can just stand around and chat. There's always something to learn. So I really hope that lots of uh, listeners will be uh, taking up the opportunity of keeping these wonderful orchid societies alive. Uh, we need them, don't we? Yeah, and they've been for a good sixty, fifty years. So. There's no need COVID to kill them off. Indeed. What it also does is help you to build a network of, of friends, people that not only grow orchids like you're interested, but they also have other skills and other bits of knowledge. And there have been many, many times I've been to the Orchid Society and I've been talking to somebody about a specific problem somewhere else in the garden or maybe even in the house. They say, I, I, I know about that. I know somebody who can fix that for you. And suddenly you've got this network of people that you can call on and you can solve problems that have got nothing to do with orchids. You're just building a network of people that are friendly and kind and supportive. And that's one of the beauties of being a member of any society, because it broadens your horizons, doesn't it? Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you, Lena and Malcolm, for talking to me about societies. And long live the orchid societies. Thank you. Thanks so much to Malcolm and to Lena. That is all for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining me. Just a heads up, there will be an episode next Friday. That's the 21st of October 2022. And then I'm taking a break on the 28th of October 22 for half term back on November the 4th. So have a fabulously planty week, everyone. Bye. music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. 
The ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Hefdone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.